Ecclesiastes, chapter 1 and 2. Everything is meaningless. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine, embracing folly my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I brought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born into my house. I also earned more herds owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasures of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and, madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads while the fool walks in the darkness. But I came to realize that that same fate overtakes both of them. 
Then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will also overtake me also. What then do I do by what then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless. For the wise like the fool will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days their work is grief and pain. Even at night their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can get or find an enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. This is the word of God. Good morning. It was great news to hear of little Thomas Buddy Lean, um, wasn't it? And uh, Abby's actually <clears throat> a member of the Bible study group that I'm in. And um, a few weeks ago, she asked what the group thought about whether she should have an epidural. She said, given that God has cursed the world in Genesis chapter 3 and that pain in childbirth is now inevitable, should I fight the curse by taking an epidural, is it okay? And uh, we debated it for a while, and I won't tell you what the answer is, uh, but hopefully she had a pain-free delivery. <clears throat> but it does kind of open up a bigger question about whether or not we can, should, try to reverse the consequences of the fall. After the fall, God frustrated the world and the earth. Now people die and suffer, and the world is in a kind of bondage to frustration. Should we, could we, try to reverse the fall? If we exerted 100% of our effort and tried our absolute hardest, could we establish a perfect life on earth or not? Well, that's the question that Ecclesiastes is going to answer and very directly and very emphatically for us. You see, in chapter 1, verse 3, he asks the question, what does man gain from all his labor under the sun? If we work and work and work and strive and strive and strive and accumulate and try to be as happy and as and live for as much, uh, uh, gather as much pleasure for ourselves in as many um, possessions as we can, could we kind of bring heaven on earth and his answer is no utterly utterly emphatically no human beings he says are totally impotent 
to reverse the consequences of the fall. Now, you might be thinking, how is this good news? This is a Christian book. This is a a book in the Christian Bible. How can we say that this is good news? How is it not utterly depressing to think that we couldn't reverse the consequences of the fall, that life is, as he says, meaningless? Is this just a book of nihilism? Well, life is meaningless, so nothing matters. Or is it a book that advances hedonism? Since nothing matters, just live it up and party because tomorrow you're going to die. Well, no, he has a surprising answer for us, which we'll get to in due course. But before we get there, we have to listen and hear the hard lesson before he gives us the response, the way that we should live in light of this scenario. It's not all about abandoning hope and just committing suicide or living for pleasure. He says there is a kind of pleasure which is found amidst the meaninglessness of life, and we'll get there in due time. Um, now, Ecclesiastes, as a bit of, for a bit of background, is a book um, which belongs to wisdom literature in the Bible. So the wisdom literature is uh, Proverbs, Psalms, a Song, of Solo- Song of Solomon or Song of Songs, and Ecclesiastes. And in the wisdom literature we find basically this pattern that um, the Jewish people are observing the world and trying to understand it from a theistic point of view. Given that this is God's world, how do we understand it? So if you, you can imagine that in, in all scripture you have events and explanations and those two things constitute revelation. So there's the exodus and there's God's explanation. What does that mean? God rescues his people. If you had the exodus without the explanation, it would be meaningless. It would just be some people moved from Egypt to Canaan. But the exodus actually, with the explanation, forms revelation. And in the wisdom literature, the event is the world. A wisdom literature adds the explanation to give us, why is the world like that? And the basic answer which Proverbs lays down at the beginning of wisdom literature is, the world works... Best if you fear God. That's wisdom. He says, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. So wisdom, uh, according to Proverbs, is fearing the Lord, and that's the best way to live a successful life in the world that God has ordered. However, what the Israelites found once they got into Canaan was that it wasn't quite as simple as that. Some people tried to kind of turn that into a formula. They said, if you fear God, you will be successful. And if you're not successful, you don't fear God. Obviously. Because that's the formula. And so we have modifications of that basic wisdom principle in Job and Ecclesiastes. So Job's friends come to him and they say, you must have done something wrong because look at all the suffering in your life. It can't be that God would be punishing you for no reason. You must have done something. And the whole book of Job is basically that long debate about whether Job has done anything deserving of what happens to him. And the answer is no. There's some dialogue up in heaven which all of them are unaware of and Job is kind of on the wrong end of the, of the stick. Uh, so it's not quite as simple as fear God and everything will go well. Then Ecclesiastes modifies that again and says, yeah, seek wisdom, fear God, you're still going to die. 
No amount of wisdom, no amount of the fear of God can stop you from dying. Because that's the world that God has now... Uh, well, that's, the, that, that's the, the condition of the world that God created. Now death governs and everything eventually returns to dust. So that's the background uh, on, on Ecclesiastes as a part of wisdom literature. So now let's dive in. And the first thing that the, the, uh, the teacher wants us to know is that human life is fleeting. You can see in chapter 1, verse 2, he says, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. Now, part of the reason that people struggle with Ecclesiastes is because of the word which is translated meaningless here. The Hebrew word is hebel, and hebel actually kind of means mist or a fog or smoke. So he's saying life is just transient. It's like smoke. You could, there's, it, there's the appearance of something, but you can't, you can't touch it. There's no substance. So the opposite of the word translated meaningless is not meaningful. The opposite of the word hebel is substantial. Life is insubstantial, he says. There's no substance. It's just like air. In fact, there's a building material, if you're a tradesman here, you'll know there's a building material called hebel, the exact same word as this Hebrew word. And it's aerated concrete, which looks strong. It looks like concrete, but if you put a screw into it, it just falls straight out. And... uh, it's ironic. I don't know, maybe they chose the word Hebel because of this Hebrew word, but something that appears to be substantial and strong, but it actually, it's just air. There's nothing there. And that's what he says human life is like. And then he shows, by comparison to the world, how frail and, and um, fleeting we are. He says generations come and generations go. The earth remains forever. Like the earth is just standing there watching us come and go, come and go, come and go. Like ants, billions of us passing through and the earth sitting there witnessing and watching us all come and watching us all go. He talks about the wind. It blows to the south, it turns to the north, it goes around and around, ever returning on its course. All the streams flowing into the sea. The earth is this constant system that just continues and continues and continues and we make absolutely no difference to it whatsoever. We don't stop the sun from rising, we don't stop it from setting. We don't stop the wind from blowing this way, we don't stop it from blowing that way. We don't stop the tide, the rivers, the moon, the sun. We don't stop anything, we just come and we go like a mist. And that is our life, like a vapour. For the most part, we spend our days pretending otherwise or just stopping our ears and pretending and and trying to not not think about uh, the shortness of our life. We maintain the illusion of progress and uh, human strength and we just imagine that we will live forever. But of course, we all know that we're just a blink of an eye and we're gone. So, how successful could humans be at resisting the fall? Utterly unsuccessful. We're here for a, 
just a mere uh, transient second on the way from being dust to becoming dust. I have a friend called David Sinclair. Um, I went to school with him. Uh, in, uh, he's a professor in the Department of Genetics and co-director of the Paul F. Glenn Center for Biology of Aging Research at Harvard Medical School. Uh, when we were in school, we called him Barney because he looks like Barney Rubble from the Flintstones. <laughs> he's come a long way since then. Uh, but uh, there's a talk that he gives on, on uh, a TED, a TED talk, where he talks about um, the death of his, I think it's his grandmother, uh, a dear relative, and the pain that he felt in watching her age and age and then eventually die. And that created in him this incredible um, motivation to fight the battle against aging. And so he, he devoted his life to curing the world of aging, in fact, he wants uh, the, medical, uh, the medical science to declare ageing as a curable disease. Uh, and he's committed himself to that. And uh, he spent decades and decades and decades researching into what it is that makes people die. And he found the answer. Incredible. He found the answer, why do people age and die? And his answer is life. Life makes you die. To talk about it scientifically, your cells reproduce and reproduce and replace themselves, and when that happens, they duplicate the DNA. Your cell in it duplicates and reproduces, and that process gets less and less accurate. So over time, your, the DNA replication becomes corrupted and corrupted and corrupted, and you start to age and die. And the experiments that he did with mice discovered that the healthiest rats died first. And the rats that suffered lived longest. Because the more they were fed, the faster and the more often their cells replicated and reproduced, maintained themselves, and, the, and then that corruption arrived earlier. The rats that he starved their metabolism slowed down and the cell replication and reproduction slowed down and they lived longer. So his lifestyle is that he eats two meals a day and fasts for several days a week to slow down his metabolism. And so he's actually discovered what the Bible has been saying all along is that ageing and death is unavoidable. It's in the cells, it's in the DNA, it's at the most fundamental level. And he has been unwittingly waging a war against God. He's trying to cure the world of ageing and death in a way that isn't the way that God has offered. The way that God has offered to cure the world of ageing and death is through resurrection, not through medication. And the sooner we come to accept that, Actually, what we're going to find in Ecclesiastes is the happier we will be in this life. If you're still trying to fight God and fight the fall and trying to create the perfect world, trying to create Eden again on earth, you'll have a miserable life, like he says in the next chapter. To, God, uh, to Adam, God said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles 
for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the dust. Since from dust you were taken, dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Human life is fleeting. As Kansas said, don't hang on to it. Nothing lasts forever but the earth and sky. It slips away and all your money won't another minute buy. Clinging to this life and trying to perfect it and trying to preserve it for as long as possible is arduous and fruitless because sooner or later you will pass, you will return to the dust, as will I. It's futile. And accepting your mortality is the first step to being liberated from that endless cycle of suffering, trying to preserve that which cannot be preserved. So, human life is futile, sorry, fleeting, and human achievement is futile, which is the second part of his exploration in uh, chapter 1, verse 12, to the end of chapter 2. He explores all of human activity, everything done under the sun, under the sun or under heaven, depending on your translation. And that's the key word here. It's the activities of humankind, of mankind, as we busy ourselves all day long doing various things. And he, he kind of surveys all of that human activity and examines the question, what's worth doing? What's lasting? What's substantial? What of all the human activity that's done does not end in the grave and does not return to nothing? And again, his answer is none of it. All human activity is totally futile. Not that it's not worthwhile, but that it's futile. It doesn't achieve anything. At the end of the day, we die and leave everything that we've done behind us. So in verse 15, his conclusion there, or it's, it's a question. What is crooked cannot be straighted. What is lacking cannot be counted. That brokenness, that crookedness of the world can't be straightened. There's nothing that humans can do to fix it, no matter how hard we try. So he explores, he goes uh, from chapter 2, verse 1 to 11, pleasure and achievement. He tests himself uh, with wine, great projects, houses, vineyards, gardens, parks, reservoirs, male and female slaves, herds, flocks, kind of a typical life for all of us here, right? Uh, gold, singers, your own private um, Jerusalem's got talent, the delights of the heart of a man. And uh, in terms of worldly achievements, basically he's got it all. He says, I had it all. You name it, I had it. As much pleasure as was possible, as much success as as a man could possibly have. And then in verse 11, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I toiled to achieve, everything was heeble, missed. It was a chasing after the wind and nothing was gained. Because no matter how wise, no matter how successful, no matter how enjoyable your life is, and it all ends in death. Death is the great nullifier. It just all returns to zero at the end. And he says, uh, I have to leave it. Um, I hated life because after all of that toil, I just had to leave it to an idiot who came after me and didn't work hard for it, has no wisdom, doesn't know how to manage it. 
And when you look at, at uh, Solomon, some people say this book was written by Solomon. It's not certain, but just look at Solomon's life. He, he established this glorious kingdom for himself and he left it to his son Rehoboam and within a few days it was all gone because Rehoboam was an idiot. And he feels the same. No matter how much I accumulate, no matter how much toil I, I, I endure, how successful I am, how, wisdom, how wise I am, I've got to leave it all behind and who knows how the next person is going to treat it. When we were kids, um, I used to love going to the beach and digging a hole in the sand. It was great fun. You dig as big a hole as you can and as deep a hole as you can. But even as you were digging, if you, you get to a certain point when the water would start coming up from underneath and destroying your work. And then as the tide was coming in, of course, you were fighting back the tide. And then the next day you went back there and there was absolutely zero evidence that you had done anything at all because the water would just fill it in and wash it all over. You couldn't even, even see a mark. And uh, according to the writer of Ecclesiastes, our lives are kind of like that. We strive and strive and work and work and work, and, and then two generations later, no evidence that we existed. No memory of us. My kids know who I am, but will their kids know who I am? Maybe. Will their kids of my kids' kids know who I am? Not at all. I'll just be a name, if that. <laughs> <laughs> and isn't that a picture of our lives just digging sand in the beach a few seconds later no evidence that we were even here that's the, uh, the message of Ecclesiastes it's a hard hitting direct message it says wake up and smell the coffee you are not here forever not longer than, a, than a, just a blink of an eye and it's not, an, it's not a unique message in the Bible. You know, I looked around, I saw 1 Peter says this, exactly the same thing. 1 Peter 1 verse 24, All flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. This is not a unique, strange message in the Bible. Ecclesiastes is, 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 a, is throughout the Bible. But it's a penetrating, thorough examination and meditation on what happened in the fall in Genesis chapter 3. To dust, you, you, from dust you came and to dust you shall return. And he won't let us live under, under the delusion that our lives are anything other than mist. However, the big surprise is his conclusion. His conclusion is not, ah, oh, well, just kill yourself, do whatever you want. His big conclusion is that there is actually a way to be content inside that meaningless cycle. And look at that with me in verse 24 of chapter 2. A man can do nothing better, uh, a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? So the gift of God is actually finding satisfaction in the meaningless work, the toil that God has given us each day. Not trying to manufacture heaven on earth, but simply living content with what God gives us each day. 
His solution is not to abandon everything. His solution is to enjoy your work. Yeah, it doesn't achieve anything in the long run, but it still can be enjoyable if you think this is what God has given me to do today. I'll do it with contentment and enjoy the food that I get from working at the end of the day. The output of your work is actually not what matters. It's the work of your work which matters. That's what God has given you to do. It's what God has given me to do each day. Whatever we're doing, that is God's gift. If we see it that way, we actually don't need to think that by my work, I'm changing anything. Otherwise, you get into this trap of evaluating yourself by your achievements. And that's a terrible trap to be in. Because all achievement is utterly futile. You don't actually achieve anything except a hole in the sand which has gone the next day. But if you enjoy the work that God has given you and do it for him, then that's true contentment, that's true delight, it's true joy, and it's liberating. That's the liberating message of Ecclesiastes. You don't have to change the world. You just have to receive what God has given you to do and be grateful and content in that. It's a much humbler approach to life and a much more liberating one. Because he, as he says in verse 25, without God, who can eat or find enjoyment? If you view your work as a gift from God, you can eat your food at the end of the day, enjoy your work morning till afternoon. There's one question I dread in job interviews, and uh, I can remember one that I had not that long ago where the, uh, the HR consultant asked me, why do you want to do this job? And if I answered from Ecclesiastes according to my heart, I would say, well, I love chasing the wind. (laughs) Nothing better for me than meaningless toil. Well, actually, I could answer it this way too, couldn't I? And this is the way I did answer it in the interview. I said, it doesn't actually matter to me what I do. I just do whatever God gives me to do. Whatever you give me to do, I'll do it with my whole heart. And... uh, it wasn't the job, the, the answer that he was expecting. He was expecting, I love the product. I want to achieve great things for your company. I, yeah, I love the, your vision. I was just like, I'll do whatever you, you want me to do. Just pay me so I can go home and feed my family. <laughs> but that was the honest answer. And he said, oh, oh, I, I, I can respect that, yeah. So... That's the liberating answer that Ecclesiastes gives us. He says, don't think that your work is going to prolong your life. Don't think that it's going to reverse the fall and create this perfect situation. But just to realize that that's what God has given you today. Do it, enjoy it, and be content. When you load your tools into the ute, when you sit down at your office desk, when you're making the kids sandwiches when you're vacuuming the lounge room, preparing financial statements, coding on your computer screen, whatever it is that you do to earn your keep, if you're retired, swinging the golf club or uh, whatever it is that you fill your days with, that is God's gift to you for today. That is the reward that we get. Um, Not what we achieve by that, but by viewing that as the gift of God. That itself is its own reward. Eat, wake, sleep, repeat. 
remember we were talking about that a couple of weeks ago, but hidden in that cycle of eat, eat, work, sleep and repeat, hidden in that endless cycle is actually the secret of contentment. If you can do that, knowing that that's God's gift each day, then it can be a contented life. That cycle is the gift of God. So, I asked Ebony a question yesterday and we were talking about this. Ecclesiastes has an answer for this question, the world is broken. And there's a common answer to this. The world is broken, how do we fix it? A common answer is become a Christian and everything will be okay. But that's not Ecclesiastes' answer. Ecclesiastes' answer is the world is broken, nothing's going to fix it except a new creation, a new world, a resurrection from this world. So if you've, if you've been sold a version of Christianity which teaches you to expect that becoming a Christian will, at least in some degree, create heaven on earth, will improve life, will insulate you from suffering, pain, death, then you've been duped. Ecclesiastes answers this in the affirmative. Christianity does not solve the problems of the world. Christianity is the doorway into the resurrection. As Christ has been resurrected from the dead, so will we. And that's when the world's problems will be solved. That's when the hebel of life, the meaningless, the the emptiness, the insubstantialness of this life, which inevitably ends in death, will be resolved. In the resurrection. In the meantime, no matter how much we strive, no matter how much we fight and fight and fight and, and attempt to create a perfect world on earth, it will never happen. You can't do it. So abandon the pretense that your life is going to contribute to anything permanent in this world and embrace what God has given you and me each day as we uh, live out the rest of our, our days here. I worship the King is a song that we often sing here. I'll close with the words from, I think it's the third verse of that. Frail children of dust and feeble as frail, in you do we trust, nor find you to fail. Your mercies, how tender, how firm to the end, our maker, defender, redeemer and friend. <laughs>